Well, good morning, everybody. Um, Pastor Jeremy already introduced me, but my name's Gabe Healy. I've been the youth director here, the high school youth director here for a while now, year and a half, almost two years. Um, and it is a privilege for me to be able to share the word with you all this morning. But before I do, let's pray. Let's seek the Lord's face. Father in heaven, we come to you thankful again for this opportunity that you seem to give us each week. Lord, that you require of us, that you ask of us to meet together as a body under your Son, by your Spirit, Father. We thank you for that. And so we ask that you would give your Spirit again afresh to us this morning, Lord, that we might receive your word, that I might speak your word, Father, and that you would receive the glory for it. I pray that you wouldn't let me or my words or anything get in the way, but that your son would be shown to be as beautiful and as glorious as he is, and that you would be praised for it. So we ask all of these things, Father. We love you, and we praise you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. On July 6, 1415, John Huss was led from his prison cell to a stake to be burned for his teachings against the Roman Catholic Church. But first, they stripped him of his clothes, naked before his friends and his family, put a tall headdress painted with pictures of the devil, and seemingly committed his soul to hell before lighting the wood and the brush that was underneath his feet. As the voices of the crowd roared against him, it is said that he was heard singing psalms, and praying to Jesus. As the fire rose up his feet, began to touch his legs and his waist, you can imagine the pain he was in, it said his last words were these, Lord Jesus, it is for thee that I endure this cruel death. I pray thee to have mercy on my enemies. Countless others have given their lives for Christ in similar ways. The martyrs, we know stories of them. I can think of a story I heard of a little boy, and I don't know the details, in some tribe in Africa that had recently been converted, and a group of terrorist gunmen came into his village and demanded that all reject Christ and convert to Islam. And I don't know what happened with the rest of those in his family or in his village, but it is said that on his knees, chained to the ground, with a gun to his head, this little boy, maybe ten, looked up at the gunman and said, I am so afraid. I'm so afraid, but I cannot deny Jesus. And he was shot, and he was killed, and he was welcomed into the arms of his Savior that very moment. Stephen Lawson has said, and I'm paraphrasing that Christianity is baton handed down from generation to generation, covered in the blood, sweat, and tears of Christians who have fought and died for their Savior, for the gospel. But the question is, what is it actually that gave these martyrs the ability to remain steadfast and faithful throughout these trials, throughout the testing? Or more accurately and more applicably to the story that we're going to look at today, what is it, or more, what does it look like for one who is filled with the Holy Spirit to walk through a test, to face a trial? This morning, I'd like to find the answer to that question in the stoning of Stephen. 
Christianity's first martyr and try to see how he passes his own test, really the ultimate test of death for Jesus. So turn with me, please, if you would, in your Bibles to Acts 6, where we're going to read the entirety of Acts 6 and then portions of chapter 7, skipping over the argument that Stephen makes here, and I'll summarize it for us all. But we're going to read as we go. So join me in reading chapter 6. Now in those days, while the disciples were multiplying in number, there was grumbling from the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not pleasing to God for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this need. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the service of the word. And this word pleased the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they stood before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them, and the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to multiply greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and were arguing with Stephen. But they were unable to oppose the wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him, dragged him away, and brought him to the Sanhedrin. And they put forward false witnesses who said, This man never ceases speaking words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus, the Nazarene, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all, were sitting in the, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin saw his face like the face of an angel. It's important for us to note some of the background that is given to us before we highlight the passage that we will highlight in chapter 7. So here in chapter 6, we see a practical need rise up in the early church. The church is choosing from within itself several men to meet this need, the need of, of Hellenist widows not being served the same as the other Christians. And so these men would be fulfilling what we consider today to be the office of deacon. And Stephen is among these men, and it seems perhaps that maybe he is even sort of the, the deacon of deacons here, the team leader of these men that are chosen. But don't miss here what this passage tells us about Stephen. Verse 5 tells us that Stephen is a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Full of the Holy Spirit. And so here, right away, we get a glimpse of who will be with Stephen throughout this trial. Throughout this test, it's the Holy Spirit. And as Christians, we are indwelled by and sealed by the exact same Spirit that Stephen was. We have this same Spirit of Christ that filled Stephen, and so it may be appropriate for us not to view Stephen as some far-off character a long, long time ago who is better than us and greater than us and isn't like us, 
No, but as a man who is very much like us, an imperfect Christian indwelled by the Holy Spirit. A.W. Tozer once said this, the Spirit-filled life is not a deluxe edition of the Christian life. It is part and parcel of the total plan of God for his people. You see, Christ gave us his spirit upon salvation, another helper. And it is for every Christian, every Christian to be full of him. Child, adult, male, female, elder, deacon, congregant. Every Christian to be full of the Holy Spirit, full of him. But Stephen... Being chosen as a deacon, he goes out and he begins teaching the gospel and doing miracles. But while he is teaching and doing miracles, as we read, a group of Hellenistic Jews rise up against him in order to silence him. Hellenistic Jews were Jews that had adopted much of the Greek culture at that time, and many think that Stephen would have been one of this group before his conversion into Christianity. And so, in a sense, you can see him going back to these people of once he was one and preaching to them the gospel, trying to win them to Christ by the Spirit, loving these people and caring for these people. But this group, this specific group of Hellenistic Jews, ironically said to be from the synagogue of the freedmen, ironic because we know, and of the characters in this story, they are the ones in bondage. Stephen is free. But they rose up and they began arguing with Stephen. More accurately, the scripture tells us, more than arguing with Stephen, they argued with the Holy Spirit. But this group of Jewish scholars, priests and other men, couldn't best one man who had the Holy Spirit. Couldn't best one man who had the Holy Spirit. And so they began began to argue with him and became angry. They dragged him in front of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council of the time, and put forward men and witnesses to lie about Stephen and to accuse him of blaspheming against God and the law. And you'll remember that this is almost exactly what the Jews did with Christ. Those who identify with him will be persecuted like him. And finally, finally, after the lying and the accusing, Stephen gets the opportunity when the high priest asks him, Are these things so? He gets the opportunity to preach, really, to these Jews the history of Israel. He highlights Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, Solomon, the tabernacle, the prophets. He walks them right through the history, right through the Old Testament, highlighting the entire way two things. The exceeding faithfulness and abundant love of the Father towards them and their own radical rebellion and rejection of him and everyone that he sent to them. And then Stephen, in conclusion, and this is where we will pick up in chapter 7, turns really the sword of this argument towards them, no longer their fathers, but to them. And this is where, like I said, we'll pick up in verse 51. I'll read through 53. This is Stephen speaking, concluding his message. You men, stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. And which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, you who received the law as ordained by angels, and yet did not observe it. So Stephen turns to the Jews in front of him and tells them that they are guilty personally, just like their fathers were for resisting the Holy Spirit and rejecting God. And maybe you can almost feel the Holy Spirit in Stephen seeing these people whom he has loved and cared for and cherished for thousands of years. Again, reject his messenger. Again, reject him. And the Holy Spirit, through Stephen, continues. And he tells them that in the same way that their fathers persecuted the prophets, they have gone a step further and have murdered the Messiah. Then he accuses them, rightfully so, of rejecting the law. And it is here in verse 54 that Stephen faces his real test, the real trial. You might think everything that's happened so far has been a test. For Stephen, it seems that this is due due diligence. Now, this isn't considered a test, not yet. Not until we see what happens in verses 54 through 60. So read with me there. Now, when they heard this, they became furious in their hearts, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But crying out with a loud voice, they covered their ears and rushed at him with one accord. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he was calling out and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. And so the first thing we're going to note that Stephen does in the midst of trial and tests is looks unto Jesus. He looks unto Jesus. So Stephen, upon finishing his his defense to the Jews, sees their reaction. They're not merely upset. They're not merely offended. No, they are like, Wild dogs who have been backed into a corner by the gospel. And Christian theologians of the past have often said when confronted with the gospel, with the gospel, one will either submit and repent or reject it and lash out. And you can see what these men did. Like dogs, they're ready to attack Stephen. But we know this place. We know where Stephen is. Many of us have been here ourselves. Maybe it's a phone call, or a confrontation, or a decision that we have to make. Whatever it is, we have all come to those moments in our lives where we're faced with great odds, and we say, what are we going to do? What can I do? How is this happening to me? And we know, we know that we are about to be faced with an incredible challenge. We've all been in Stephen's shoes to one degree or the other. Maybe you're in the middle of it right now. Maybe you're being faced down by a trial or a test that you know if you're alone in it, it'll be insurmountable. And the opposition seems to be mounting higher and higher against you. And you can really see Stephen here. You can see him before this group of men with murder in their hearts, seemingly 
at their mercy. And Stephen sees them. He sees their furious hearts, their gnashing teeth, and he realizes that they have again denied their sinfulness and are going to kill him. Christianity's first martyr. This time, he realizes it's not jail. I'm not going to go to prison for a while. They're not going to silence me and order me to leave town. They're not going to put me in house arrest. They're not even just going to beat me up and leave me on the side of the road. No. Stephen here, after preaching their need of salvation to these men, realizes, I'm not leaving. This is it for me. They're going to kill me. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't panic. He doesn't run. He doesn't argue with them when faced with this furious, hell-bent, hell-bent crowd. Stephen simply gazes up into heaven and he looks at Jesus, his Savior, his Lord, his rock. Like Peter looking at the waves when walking to Christ and growing fearful, he could have looked at this crowd. He could have seen these men and been terrified. He probably was terrified. He could have ran. He could have argued with them. He could have, could have pleaded for his life. Maybe when you see the cancer, or you see the death, or you see the wayward child, or the impossible situation, you have that same temptation. i got to get out of here. What am I going to do? Panic. Fear. Yet Stephen, a Christian full of the Holy Spirit, looks to Christ. Because he knows that even if he's outnumbered one to a hundred, or two hundred to one, that it is Jesus who is in complete control, not the Sanhedrin, Christ, the man who loves him the most, is in complete control down to the detail. And so he looks, and similarly to how Isaiah sees Christ in his vision, in all of his glory, Stephen looks up and he sees Christ here in all of Christ's glory, next to the Father, and he sees him standing Standing at the Father's right hand in authority over Stephen's life, over his death, over the Jews and this trial and this test. And Jesus doesn't need to say a word to Stephen to give him the strength and the courage and the faith to face this test head on. Why? Because Stephen has the Holy Spirit. And Christ tells us that when my helper comes, when the Spirit comes, he will remind you of everything that I've said to you when it's time. He'll give you the words to say, and he'll give you the words to cherish. And so I wonder, personally, what might have Stephen heard here from the Spirit? Perhaps Christ's words, whoever loses their life for me will find it. Maybe all those the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Or no one who has left home, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or fields for me, and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Perhaps blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Or I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. 
Or my favorite, I am with you always, always, even to the end of the age. Or maybe just seeing his Savior, seeing his Lord, seeing his best friend is enough. Just being reminded of and tasting again Christ's sweetness in the midst of this test is plenty. Just looking at him and seeing that he is everything he said he was, that he would do everything he said he would do, and seeing that he will sustain Stephen by his Holy Spirit through this trial. Makes me think of these words in a song that I know by Sandy Patty. I don't know if she wrote it or not. It says, He's more than wonderful than my mind can conceive. He's more wonderful than my heart can believe. He goes beyond my highest hopes and my fondest dreams. He's everything that my soul longed for, everything he's promised, and so much more. Stephen knows this. And Stephen, having been reminded that Christ is ever-present, will keep all his promises and is in complete authority over the situation and has just had the privilege of seeing him here before his trial speaks up again. He doesn't quiet down. And he says to this crowd, this angry crowd who's about to kill him, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And you can hear, if you might remember, Daniel's words after seeing his vision of the one he calls the Son of Man. Ring through Stephen's vision. I'll just read it for you, what Daniel says. And behold, with the clouds of heaven... One like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, and came near before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every tongue might serve him. And so Stephen sees this son of man next to the Ancient of Days, looking upon him in power and beauty, and because of it, he's able to take on this test. So again, the very first thing that we must do when confronted with a test is to orient ourselves, our hearts, our minds on Jesus and remember who our Savior is and what he said he will do. To look to him and to truly be able to say, genuinely from our hearts, to live is Christ and to die is even better. It's gain. But the test doesn't go away. The men don't quiet down and go home, realize that Stephen's right. No, the crowd, being spiritually blind, cry out with a loud voice. They cover their ears and they charge Stephen. And they drag him out of the city and after giving their coats to an unconverted Paul, begin to stone Stephen. So picking up here, we're going to read verse 59. They went on stoning Stephen as he was calling out and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So notice first, here, what Stephen doesn't do, what his response is not. He doesn't resist. He doesn't beg them to stop. He doesn't say, wait, wait, what are you doing? I'm trying to help you. I'm bringing you the gospel. I care about you and your souls. I just got chosen to be a deacon at my church. God's going to use me in all of these ways. You can't kill me now. No. And more importantly, he doesn't ask Jesus to stop it either. There is no, Lord, take this test away. 
Lord, stop this trial. You know I'm not strong enough. Take it away, Jesus. I thought you cared about me. You're going to let me go through this? No. He has just seen Jesus and recognizes that the Lord is sovereign over this test and has his own glorious purposes for it. And so Stephen trusts Jesus. And he cries out, not Lord, save me from them, or Lord, be merciful to me and make it stop. No, he cries out in submission to Christ's sovereignty and in trust in his Savior, Lord, receive my spirit. God, if it is your will that I die here, if I'm not leaving this place, then kill me and let my death be for you and be for your glory. And it is with this same passion for God's will and trust in Christ that we must face our trials and our tests. Friends, if we prioritize our will over God's, we will fail entirely and waste our lives. And so when we are faced with a trial, the second thing a spirit-filled Christian will do, must do, is to refocus their trust in Christ and his plan. To reflect and ask yourself, do I really trust Christ? Do I really trust him? Do I trust him with this situation? Do I trust him that he will receive glory? Do I trust him that it is for my good? Do I trust him or do I trust myself? Do I want his will? Do I want my will? We don't run from discomfort as Christians or pain or struggle. We face it head on, and we trust that Jesus will take care of us. Lord, receive my spirit. If you'd allow me for a moment to share with you a portion of my grandpa's testimony, and I'm under no illusion that his words will mean as much to you guys as they do to me, but I think it might help to shed some light on an orientation of a spirit-filled heart towards Christ. And so it was 1970, and my grandpa, Jim Canal was a missionary in Japan with my grandma and their three little kids, one of whom was my mom, naturally. And he had come to the realization, looking back on his life, that though he had never doubted God's love for him since the moment of his salvation, never, he had never truly felt the, the refining, disciplining love of God that the Bible, specifically Hebrews, tells us Christians will receive. If he loves you, he'll discipline you. And he'd be the first to tell you that it wasn't that he was perfect. That's not the reason why he didn't receive discipline. No, he'd say that for sure. But either way, one morning he prayed. And he said, Father, I don't have the courage to ask for your discipline. It's not in me to ask for that. However, I'm willing to be made willing. I'm willing to be given the courage to ask for it. And I think he got those words from C.S. Lewis, maybe not, but it wasn't two weeks later that in Japan, going to do pulpit fill at a Japanese church, my grandpa, in an accident, uh, in summation, fell into a deep ditch, 60 feet down, landed on his legs, shattered both of his legs, shattered his back in half a dozen places, and was put into a military hospital there for nearly a year in a full body cast. He was only able, really, to do two things. To have his Bible read to him and to tell other people what it said. 
and he did that. While in that hospital, my grandpa brought dozens of soldiers who were in that military hospital to Christ by the Holy Spirit. But the point is that this was the single hardest experience of his life. I remember him telling me that. I've never faced anything harder. There were moments where it was horrible. He got gangrene in one of his legs, and he fought that for the rest of his life. But he had also said, there has never been a moment where I have felt the love of God for me more dearly than in those it was about eight or nine months. Never. And he wouldn't trade it for the world. And it's because his trust in Christ was steadfast. He could have gone into that and complained, woe is me, why is this happening, this is horrible, I'm going to lose my leg maybe? All of these doubts, no, his trust was in Christ. And friends, there will be times in our lives when God calls us to something that we're not willing to do. There will be times in our life when he's going to call us to something that seems impossible and wildly difficult. But it is precisely then, it is precisely then when we must look to Jesus like Stephen does and see our King and our Savior and submit our will to his knowing that he has our best in mind despite the difficulty or uncomfort of any trial or test. And so Jesus here calls Stephen to die. And so Stephen responds in submission and with trust. Then Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And here in verse 60, which we will read in a moment, we see the third thing that Stephen does. A spirit-filled Christian relies on God's grace. Not just for himself, but for his enemies as well. Verse 60. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. He has looked to Jesus. He has trusted and submitted his will to Christ's. And here, falling down to his knees, perhaps in submission to Jesus, or perhaps because he can no longer stand after having been stoned, maybe both, he cries out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he dies. And Luke puts it this way, he fell asleep. So here he is. Picture it with me. Imagine him there surrounded by furious men gnashing their teeth as they throw stones at him. You can almost see him there, eyes locked on Jesus, looking over the crowd as the first stone comes. Eyes locked on Jesus, the second stone. Eyes fixed on his Savior, the third stone, the fourth stone, and then a volley of stones the size of your fist or bigger, as large as these people could carry and throw, hitting him in the body and the head, breaking bones and opening skin, crashing into him, eyes on Jesus. And then one hits his head, and he can no longer stand, and he falls into the dirt, trusting in Christ. And as the stones continue, they scream at him, they spit at him, and they curse at him. And you can see his vision fading as he sees them throwing these stones. And he says, Lord... Don't hold this sin against them. And he dies. He gloriously passes this test. He wonderfully passes this trial. He makes it through by looking at Christ and trusting in him. And we finally see here Stephen's 
and Christ's true goal for this test. Not his own defense. Not the prideful satisfaction that comes with winning an argument or besting someone else. But the salvation of the Jews, of the unsaved. Stephen, in all of this, in the midst of his trial and testing, never loses the heart of Christ for sinners. Even for those who are stoning him. And so the third thing, like I said, that a spirit-filled Christian will do when faced with a test is to fully depend on God's grace. Not only for ourselves, but even for those who are against us. If we don't know Christ's heart for sinners, if we don't know his forgiveness, his grace for us, we don't have a chance at passing any test or trial that comes our way. Without grace, we just have law. And law doesn't know a thing about passing a test. It doesn't have anything in its vocabulary to give you the courage and the faith to get through a trial. Grace does. And it is God's grace that gives us the ability to get through tests and trials. And a sure sign of His grace in our lives is the desire in us for the grace of God to be in others' lives. Christ says in Matthew 5.44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so Stephen, knowing that the Jews won't hear him, asks Jesus with his very last words to forgive the Jews just like Jesus asked his father to forgive those who were murdering him on the cross. Christ-likeness. And in these words, we see the third and final thing from this passage that will get us through trials. Like I said, a firm and rich understanding and passion for the grace of God. Our entire lives built on the grace of God, not just in our lives, but in the lives of our enemies. And with his prayer for the Jews' forgiveness, Stephen dies, and he passes this test. And like that boy who I mentioned at the very beginning is welcomed into the arms of his Savior and his best friend for all of eternity. And I'll add that Stephen's prayer was answered in Paul, one of those Jews who was standing there watching in Christ's appearing to Paul, saving him and leading him to be perhaps the greatest missionary that ever lived. Christ answered Stephen's prayer, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. His glory and our good. Now you may be thinking, some of you, I'm sure are, if that's what it looks like to walk through a test faithfully, I'm not sure I want to. That looks horrible. He died. He got stoned to death. That's what winning looks like in the Christian life. That looks like losing. It's winning If Christ asks you to die, to the flesh it looks ugly, doesn't make sense. To the spirit, oh how wonderful it is to die for your Savior, how wonderful it is to live for Jesus. To be chosen from sin, filled by the Holy Spirit, and in service to your ever-loving Master, die only to be awoken by your beautiful Savior, and embraced for eternity, and in all of your trials and tests, submitting to Christ's perfect plan and obedience, that God would receive glory, and you would finally walk into eternal life that was given to you on the cross. But perhaps some of you have never looked unto Jesus. I'm sure some of you haven't. And I'm not even asking you if you claim to be a Christian. I'm asking, have you ever looked at him? Have you ever seen him to be beautiful, to be wonderful, 
and sovereign and glorious and patient and kind and gentle. If you haven't, then I ask you to look right now. See Him on the cross taking the wrath of the Father that you deserve. See Him dead in the grave having suffered once for all. See Him coming out of that tomb triumphant over sin and death. And see Him standing at the right hand of God looking at you, imploring you, don't look at yourself. Don't look at yourself and what you have or what you do or what you want and think that it's good enough. Look at me. Look at me. And I'll grant you eternal life. Put your faith and your trust in me. And I'll give you everything that you could ever want or need in myself. I pray that the Holy Spirit would so work in your heart that you would be born again by his regenerative work and put your trust and your faith in Christ. But perhaps... And I pray this is true for most of us. You have seen Jesus. You have seen him and you know him as your Lord and you know him as your greatest love. But you're not like Stephen. Not like he's portrayed in this story. You're not, you wouldn't consider yourself full of grace, full of power, full of, the, full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. You couldn't defend or wield the scriptures like him. And if someone was going to kill you, you would be terrified. You might run. You've sinned greatly. You're not good enough. And you're too weak to do anything amazing like Stephen did for Christ. And you're right. You're right. You sin every day. You don't pray like you should. You don't read your Bible like you should. You don't share the gospel like you ought to. You don't serve Christ like you ought to. You aren't good enough. And you don't have the courage to do something like die for him, let alone trust in him during a trial. And perhaps you're right. But Jesus died for you. He isn't ashamed of you. He isn't mad at you. He doesn't regret having a relationship with you. He loves you. And in the midst of trials and tests, he's crying out to you, look at me. Look at me. Look at what I did for you. Look at who I am. And find in me all the strength power, forgiveness, and grace that you will ever need. Trust in me and what I'm doing. I'm in control. My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. Friends, he has given us the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of himself, to bring us to the finish line. Without the Spirit, we could do nothing. But with him, we can do anything for Christ. We can go through tests confidently and peacefully because by the Spirit we can look to Christ, we can trust in Him and appreciate His grace for what it is. Friends, there will be trials and tests in this life. You can be sure of that. And when those tests come and you don't have it in you to pass it, like Stephen, look beyond the stones to Christ. See Him standing in authority over your life, working everything for your good and His glory. Trust in Him and His plan. By his Holy Spirit, he will guide you through that test, giving you everything you need in the process. And spend the rest of your life, test or no test, hoping in, resting in, and testifying to Christ's grace and power. When you're facing a test, pray that the Spirit would allow you to look at Jesus, trust in him, and rely on God's grace in your life and the life of those 
who are against you. And God will miraculously use your trials and tests all for his glory and for your good. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, seems so small a thing to say, but we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your Son above all things, for your Spirit, for our salvation, and for the strength and the power that you give us, Lord. We thank you even for your commands to trust you, to look at you. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives, Father, test or no test. We thank you for the trials and the hard things and how you promised to work them for our good and to receive glory for your name. And so, Lord, here I pray that you would allow us and train us to look at your Son, to see him as beautifully and as powerfully as he truly is, to trust in him and his plan for us, and to fully depend for the rest of our lives on your grace. We pray these things, Father. We love you and we praise you. And it's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen.